So, so you guys at home, you missed, you missed the story about, about Gary and me, uh, him telling me how he loves me. And it's funny how, how guys, we can say that, and we should say that, but we always got to say bro. <laughs> it kind of masculines it, I guess. But I'm the chaplain for our Olympic Training Center. Um, with, I work with Athletes in Action. And, and uh, several years ago now, uh, before the 2002 Olympics, I was meeting with a, a speed skater, and this person had won the gold medal four years before. And we were meeting at the, the Starbucks and chapters, and this uh, person had become a Christian in our ministry. We were discipling him, and they were the odds-on favorite to, to win the gold medal again. And no Canadian had, had ever successfully defended an Olympic gold medal before. And so I, 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 as I was meeting with her, I, just, I, said, I wanted to paint a picture of what would it be like for you, if you win again, to stand on the top rung of the Olympic podium where the world has given all this attention to you, and you just take it and deflect it one step higher and actually just, just worship right there. And so I kind of asked her, I said, what was it like, you know, the first time? She said, well, you know, I, I, it all went so fast, she said. And, and uh, uh, my husband gave me a cowboy hat. I did my victory lap and took my skates off and the national anthem, the flower ceremony, and it was all over. And then I, I tried to paint this vision of what would it be like for you to sit on that podium where maybe the world is worshiping you, but you di- direct it, deflect it to the right place the Lord Jesus. And we're going to be talking to, about that today. Um, really just John the Baptist, his life was all about that. And the lessons that we can learn from John the Baptist are how to live the Christian life. So it, it, in your Bibles or your phones or whatever you use, uh, turn to chapter 3 of, of, uh, of John. That story I share, I've probably shared it before because I love that story because it just illustrates so much of what our lives are to be like. It seems like we go through so much of our lives wanting attention, doing things to get the affection of other people, and then when you get it, I don't know about you, but it just feels kind of awkward. It's like you're striving for it, then you get it, you should enjoy it. But you know what? We weren't created for that. God created us for Him, and for only Him to receive glory and recognition and esteem and, and, and honor. And so when our lives are oriented that way, everything feels right. And John the Baptist, his life was totally oriented that way. His life was just so dialed in to, to giving glory to his, his, his cousin, um, Jesus. Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 8, hopefully it's up there on the screen for you. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. You know, Isaiah is an amazing book because those Old Testament prophets, they only said what God told them to say. And they, they got it right word for word. But Isaiah also was experienced in, in very, a way that very few humans got to be, and that is he got to go to the throne room of God himself. And so there are certain aspects of, of Isaiah's prophecies that just, you, you see, boy, he understands the glory of God. I mean, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, he said in the year of King Uzziah's death, he talks about he was transported to the, to the throne room of God. This would be a good Bible trivia question if you're playing that game. Who, who, got to, who got that privilege? You got to be in the throne room of God. Another one was, you know, in the New Testament, Paul. And Paul said, I saw and heard things that were so, I weren't, I'm not allowed to share them. Um, but, but Isaiah, he, he, has pro- he has prophecies like this and, and messages like that. This passage in 4.8 that I just read, um, when I was really pursuing cross-country skiing, I, t- I typed it out on a piece of paper. I taped it to my ski pole because I made sure I didn't want to rob any of God's glory because <laughs> we're tendency to do that. But today I want us to look at the two rules of life and ministry. I started out being the two rules of ministry 
But then people kind of, I think, check out and go, well, I'm not in ministry. But, you know, we're all in ministry. We're all called to be in ministry. And so I, I decided to make it the two rules of life and ministry. And they are, number one, humility. And the number two rule of life and ministry is this verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what we're going to look at today. So let's read in John chapter 3, starting verse 22, all the way to 30. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John was also baptizing in Aenon near Salem because there was much water there. And they were coming and they were being baptized. For John had yet not yet been thrown into prison. There arose therefore a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness. Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So let me give you a little background on, on John the Baptist. His mom was Elizabeth, and you, as you recall from uh, your New Testament, that uh, Elizabeth's cousin Mary, they're related. John was born probably six months before Jesus, and a prophecy given to Zacharias was John's father that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit even while in the womb. Do you remember when the story when, when Mary came to Elizabeth? And Elizabeth said, oh, as you came, John jumped with joy in, inside the womb. And so from even before he was born, <laughs> John was kind of like his whole life, even as a, as a pre-born baby, was about celebrating his cousin Jesus. And, and um, they're very similar in a lot of ways because um, their ministries were kind of spent— there were 30 years before the ministries really began. Jesus was, you know, practicing as a carpenter in, in Jerusalem, or Nazareth, I mean, and uh, John was spending more and more time in, in, in the wilderness getting ready for, for their, um, his ministry. But sometimes I wonder if we almost avoid John. He makes us uncomfortable because the old movies, how do they portray him? Wild hair, camel robe, leather belt, eats bugs. <laughs> He's locust. The big ones really crunch. And um, wild honey and locusts is what he, what he ate. But what did Jesus say ab uh, about his cousin John? I think Sean has mentioned this once before. Jesus said, among those born of women, which is pretty much all of us, none is greater than John. That's how Jesus saw his cousin. But then he went on to say that those least in the kingdom, in the new age, are greater than even John. But John's mother, uh, Elizabeth, was barren. So John was a miracle child. His father, uh, Zechariah, was in the, in the temple in the Holy of Holies for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to offer a sacrifice. And that's when Angel Gabriel came and said, John, you're going to have a son. His name shall be John. He's going to be a prophet in the manner of the greatest prophet of all, uh, probably El Elijah. There are two significant Old Testament prophecies concerning John. One was 450 years before his life, one 700 years before his life. We see in Malachi 3.1, uh, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Isaiah 40, 30, 43, a voice is calling, 
Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So here's John the Baptist. He's got prophecies, 450 years old, 700 years old. You think that maybe he can get a little puffed up, big head? That you're that important? Not a chance. First law of humility is totally how he lived his life. He epitomizes the, the rule of, of, of humility. Secondly, that rule, you must increase, but I must decrease. Well, I'm just going to kind of go verse by verse through our text. So look at verse 22. It says, after these things. Well, what things? We spent the last two weeks looking at one of the greatest chapters in the uh, passages in the Bible when Jesus interacts with, with Nicodemus, Nick at night. We love that passage because it's, it's the gospel so clearly presented. John 3, 16. You know, they used to hold that up in football games. And when I'd share the uh, four spiritual laws with uh, campus guys, football guys, I always make a joke. I'd say, um, say, no, that's not John Madden's weight, 316. No, it's a Bible verse. And so I'd read the John 316 to him because the gospel is right there. And it's just a wonderful passage. But after these things, they went off into the wilderness. It's interesting that, that both Jesus and John kind of started their, their ministries in, in rural areas. I don't know, rural people are more open to it. Maybe city people think they're too sophisticated. Uh, but that's where they both uh, started their ministries. But then it says here in verse 22 that um, Jesus was spending time with his disciples. Now, how cool would it be, just think about this for a minute, to spend time with Jesus, just to hang out. You know, um, there were times, my first ministry assignment was Michigan Tech, and I was a single guy, and sometimes we'd do just stuff together, like, there was the $5 all-you-could-eat fish fry in Barriga, 30 miles away. So we get in the car with these football players, and they, I'm sure they were just like, oh, no, here they come. <laughs> but just hanging out with the guys. One time we went out to Lake Superior, and we made a fire, and we had done some really cool ministry stuff. We had done, like, even some high school assemblies where we stood up for our faith and we were sharing the gospel. And we made a fire, and we were just reminiscing about what God had done that year and I can just imagine, when I was doing that, I thought, this is probably what it was like for Jesus, building the fire, just talking about what had gone on, feeding the 5,000, raising the dead guy, <laughs> you know, and some of the miracles, some of the teaching, how people were coming out. They probably just talked about it. But if you could hang out with Jesus, I mean, you could ask him questions. You could just see how he interacted with people, how he handled himself, how he handled adversity. I would love to have done that. You know what? That's a great example for us, too. I know in this day and age with the panic of the pand pandemic, we're, we're kind of closing our lives in a little bit. But our society in general was already kind of, we kind of cocoon in Western uh, North America. Or North, North America, we kind of, we're, we're not that open. We need to be more open. I, I think that we need to have people in our lives, like our church, older people, man, mentor younger people and have good peer relationships and, and, and be like Jesus, just be with people. I'm so glad that most of our chairs are finally filled up here, and I would love to see us just creative ways just be together. You know, Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of the brethren. And we need to be obedient and come together and be together and, and live our lives not by fear, but by faith. You know, I don't know what your circumstance is, and I'm not going to try to be too convicting, but, but we need to live our lives by faith, not by fear, even in the midst of a pandemic. Well, let's, let's move on. Um, so much is caught, not taught. So, um, so then the contentious issue of baptism come up comes up here. 
So it says Jesus was baptizing. Then 23, John was also baptizing in the Aeon near Salem. We don't even know where those places are. But we knew they had a lot of water, so they could baptize. You know, the word baptize means to immerse. So they're doing it baptizing the right way to, to immerse. So they had to go there. But we do know, we're pretty sure that that area is um, north of Jerusalem, more in the area of Samaria. So already, John the Baptist was kind of, Jesus was coming on, and he didn't stay to be in competition. He kind of moved his ministry to a different place so they wouldn't be in competition. But then if we look at the next chapter, the first verse, it says Jesus himself wasn't, um, all right, verse 2, Jesus himself wasn't doing the baptizing, but his disciples were. It's, it's interesting. I think, um, so this whole baptism thing, John's disciples were getting a little nervous because they were with John, and he was the phenomenon of the day, and so they got to be somebody because they were with John, but, now, but John's already, already deflecting everything to Jesus. But it's interesting that Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing because remember in, um, in 1 Corinthians, one of the uh, controversies was people were claiming to be baptized by Paul, some by Apollos, some by, by Peter, and they were putting prestige on who they got baptized by. And Jesus was, was led by his father. He was smart, didn't baptize anybody. He let his disciples do it. Could you imagine somebody having pride and saying, hey, I was baptized by Jesus? There's something to that, you know? And so Jesus made sure he wasn't doing the baptizing, but his, but his disciples were. But this is all, like John's disciples here, they're bringing this up because, um, because they're pridefully posturing things. Um, and they're worried about that. In verse 24, it says, John had not yet been thrown into prison. I just want to kind of share a little bit. I think Sean may have mentioned this, but there's a couple of things I want to know us to know about the, the gospel account uh, of John. Um, the first one is, we've got the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of my profs from seminary um, came up with this theory that called Markan priority, where they felt that Mark, using Peter as his source of the gospel, wrote his gospel account first, and Matthew and Luke kind of used that material a little bit. But John came, comes from a whole different perspective. So those three synoptics are kind of similar. John comes from a whole different perspective. And he includes so many things that aren't in the synoptic gospels. And so much of John is actually the, the passion of Christ. Jesus' march to the cross, John really emphasizes that. And John's gospel came significantly after the synoptic gospels. And the last verse of John, this is what I think Sean has shared. John said something. He said, said if everything Jesus did and said, if, I don't think all the books in the world could contain it all. And so John knows that he can't do and say, put everything in his, his gospel that Jesus did. So he was very selective. So if there's anything in, in the gospel of John, then we know that there's a really specific reason for it. So in verse 24, it says, John had not yet been thrown into prison. Um, I think that's there because John wants, the gospel John wants us to know that being is important. There are three things going on with the timing of Jesus' coming, and the whole is issuance of John turning over things to Jesus. The one was that John the Baptist is the, the end of the old age. He's the last of the great prophets. Remember, the prophecy about him was he would be in the spirit of Elijah, so he's like the last of the great Old Testament prophets. But then he transitions to Jesus' ministry early on. That's why John let us know where this takes place. And then thirdly, um, Jesus' ministry constitutes the beginning of the new age, the church age. 
the one that we're here. So the timing all, of all this is really important, and that's why John put that in there. But I also think that our author, John, wants us to see the heart of John the Baptist. And that's what I really want us to look at today. John's disciples are having a hard time with that transition. So we see in verses 25 and 26, there arose there for a discussion on the part of John's disciples about purification, but somehow this whole discussion gets, takes a left-hand turn. And then verse 26, they came to their, their teacher, John, they said, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness. All are coming to him to be baptized. So what that is to me, that's the, the language of exaggeration of pride. All? All are coming to him? Really, you guys? A lot of people are, but not all the people are coming. You know, um, like I said, John's disciples felt that they're the phenomenon of the day, but now they're being replaced. John has no trouble with it. But his disciples are having some trouble with it. And they're breaking the first law of ministry. They're not being humble. You know, and, and yet we're all in ministry. You know, there are no priests, no go-betweens, because the, the Bible tells us that we're all priests. There are no special ambassadors, because the Bible tells us we're all ambassadors. So the first law of the Christian life is um, be humble. I'm going to tell a story. Um, Got to be careful with this one. It's an NFL story, Gary. Um, when I was uh, on staff with Athletes in Action, way back in the States, I went to our staff training. Uh, it's part of a bigger organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. And there's like 5,000 people at our staff training. So 5,000 people were, were meeting in this big gym called, called uh, Moby Gym in Fort Collins, Colorado, Colorado State. And they're bringing this superstar pastor. I mean, this guy, you know his name. Big time author, church of thousands, um, uh, has a radio program, television program, probably the biggest inner city ministry uh, in, the in the world. And they introduced him also as the chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys. And he gets up there and he, and he, um, and he says, I need to make a correction. Because I'm thinking, okay, no, John Taylor is the chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys, not this guy. And he says, I want to make a correction. I'm not champion, the chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys. I'm chaplain of the world champion Dallas Cowboys. Everybody goes crazy. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> so, so I was thinking, okay, John Taylor was the guy that really was, uh, epitomizes humility. He was one of our athletes in action guys. Back in the 70s, these guys, were, were, we had a wrestling team. And we had Olympians, Olympic medalists, and, and top guys in this team. And they'd go behind the Iron Curtain and do all this, this secret uh, ministry, and they'd lead all these guys in these Iron Curtain countries to Christ. And then they set them up in their ministries, and, and they had these movements in these communist countries. And John was one of those guys that did that. When I was in my first year of ministry, uh, John was describing his, his time with the Cowboys. And he said that um, the first couple of years I was there, like nothing really happened. But um, I knew the Bible said to dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness, and he said, after about two or three years, things really just started to happen. And I read that as a rookie um, minister guy. And I told him later at one of our staff conferences, John, I read that. That just encouraged me so much to dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. So, so I asked at our staff breakout time, I was like, like what's going on? I mean, isn't John still our, our, our chaplain at, in, uh, at Dallas? And, and uh, they said, oh, yeah, John brought in that guy to speak at one of the pregame chapels. He's been going around calling himself the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys ever since. But um, there we have, I don't want to be too convicting to this guy because I, I don't know about his motives, but I know that John was a, a humble guy. And, and he just wanted to do the ministry that God had called him to. And years before even John, there was a guy named Doc Eshelman. And he's the one that started the whole NFL chaplaincy. And I got to meet Doc when 
at the end of his life, actually, I was in the, at the Olympics in 1988 in Seoul, Korea, and we were doing some ministry, and a lot of our, uh, at this conference, ministry training conference, a lot of our guys were chaplains uh, at the Olympic Village. And I got to go out for lunch with Doc Eshelman. And he was dying of cancer at the time. He took three or four of us younger ministry guys out for lunch. And I was just like soaking it all up. And, and Doc started this chaplaincy with the Cowboys. They're known as America's team at the time. And so then guys would get traded, and they'd go to different teams, and they'd say, hey, we had this thing called a, a chapel at, at, in Dallas. We should get that here. So it spread throughout the league. And, and I'd hardly even heard about Doc, but um, in time I got to understand and know and see what happened there. And then Doc and then John, and, and the ministry just c- continues on. People are faithful in that. But um, Verse 27 we see the reason to be humble. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You know, I read this verse uh, when I first moved to Calgary in 1994. And I came up to Calgary to start a, a, a ministry to Winter Olympic athletes. And I didn't know how to start. I mean, no one had done it that I knew of. Um, no one kind of showed me how to do it, told me how to do it. I read that verse and I just thought, wow, I mean, if anything happens, it's going to be God. It's not going to be me. And, and so I'm just going to trust that he's going to do something. And if not, it, it's his choice. You know, that athlete I, I started the, my message with, um, I met that person the very first full day I moved to Canada. And two weeks later, she became a Christian. Two months later, another speed skater by the name of Linda uh, became a Christian. And then we started Bible study. Some others started coming, and, and then they... Uh, a while later, a guy named Casey, who actually won the gold medal in, in the 500 meter in 2002, and he had become a Christian just before he moved to Calgary to train. And he, he wanted to train in Calgary because it's a better place, but, but God knew that this baby Christian needed a, 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 ho- a good home for him um, to get disciples, so he brought him to us. So after, after a while, we had this movement of all these speed skaters that were Christians, and we have a friend um, named Irene from Holland who has a, a speed skating magazine, and she, she said, you know, Steve, uh, in 1988, when I was here for the Olympics, I thought I was the only Christian in the whole speed skating world. And she goes, and look around. They're everywhere. <laughs> so this verse came true in, in, in our life. God, God did a neat work. But even Jesus himself knows and abides by this. Look at verse 35 of the same chapter. It says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So even Jesus only receives what, what the Father gives to him. And then later in, in John's Gospel, John 15, 5, tremendous verse for us to just to soak up and absorb and, and learn from. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, John the Baptist understood something that Paul later wrote about in his, his letters. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, <clears throat> as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. You know, mercy is something that you're given. Mercy is something you don't deserve. Mercy is something you don't earn. And how does Paul describe his ministry? It's mercy. God's very merciful to us to give us the opportunity to be a minister. And then a little later in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, in defending his ministry and explaining others he says what you have that you did not receive but if you did receive it why do you boast as if you had received it so everything we have if we get to build into god's kingdom um if we're fruitful for him it's god's mercy 
It's him giving it to us. We use our talents that way, including. And Paul, when he's in prison in the Philippians, I love his heart. This is the heart of humility. So he writes a letter to the Philippians. He's in jail. It's one of the prison epistles. And there are people that don't like Paul. And they're preaching the gospel just to spite him. And what does Paul say? He says, it doesn't matter. Whether in pretext or in pure heart, as long as the gospel gets preached, I am so happy. I mean, these guys are out to make Paul look bad, but he's like, as long as they're preaching the gospel, it's okay with me. You know, um, ministry is a lot like, like surfing. Uh, a year ago, September, I went down to Santa Cruz to do a half Ironman triathlon, and, and, um, and I thought, man, it's a flat course. It's at sea level. I'm going to have a fast time. I didn't have a fast time, <laughs> but it was so fun being in Santa Cruz. And I pulled up, and I was in this pull-off, and I was at the Pacific Ocean. It was my first Ironman, or first half Ironman triathlon, swimming in the ocean. It was freezing cold. I got so hyperthermic. It took me about five minutes getting out of the water to put my chin strap on my helmet. I could barely get that thing out. I was so cold. But I pulled up at, and looked at the Pacific Ocean. There's a statue of this, this surfer. And I was reading the statue, and then I la later found out that Santa Cruz is actually like the surfing capital of, of, of California. I mean, you've got to be pretty cold-blooded to be able to surf in that because I found out later that um, the summertime when I was there, I mean, the, the waves weren't that big. And so when I got done with my, my race, I just sat in the ocean and soaked up the vibe before I got in my car for the long drive home. And I locked, watched a lot of these beginners trying to, to get up on the board and ride 10, 20, 30 meters, whatever. But it's the wintertime when the real waves come. And that's when the pros come to Santa Cruz to really shred the surf. And when I was watching these guys go, you know, whether they're a novice uh, in the summer or uh, a pro in, in the winter, a surfer never makes a wave. And they only ride the waves. And, and the waves come, and they they'd try to be skillful. The guys I watched weren't skillful, but I would have loved to have been there in the winter, see the pros ride the big waves in the winter. And, and the ministry is the same thing. Only God can make a wave. We need to faithfully, skillfully ride that wave. But when the waves don't come, you don't beat yourself up and go, man, how come nothing's happening in my life? How come the Lord isn't using me? Because the waves just haven't come yet. And when the waves do come, you don't go, man, look at me, look how great I am. And look at this and that. <clears throat> because God made that wave. You know, my life um, right now, there's not a whole lot of waves going on. Normally, this time of the year, as the chaplain for the uh, Winter training, Olympic Training Center, I'd be at a speed skating oval. And I'd be hanging out, meeting new guys. The Christian guys that I know, we'd, after training, we'd go have lunch here or Starbucks there and open up the Bible and be the Word together. And usually the, the Oval starts in June, and they say we might open it up in January, but they probably won't. So the guys are going up to Fort St. John and, and doing some trainings. I've been trying to get a hold of them. They're not even answering my texts because they're just so busy. Or they don't have internet. I don't know what's going on. And so, and then, and normally uh, I go to the, the bobsled track, and they've shut down the track, unfortunately, but we have the, the ice house, the push start track. So I hang out, watch the guys, they get all the testosterone jacked up, even the women, they get all jacked up, and they, they push these sleds, and, and it's a great place for me to hang out, meet the guys and gals, and, and the Christians afterwards will go do Bible study in the, in the commons area by the garden cafe, but I mean, I'm not in their bubble, so I can't do it. So, and, and then even with biathlon, so I got some biathletes here, and, and they had their trials last week, and normally I'd be there cheering them on, and, and it wasn't open to spectators. Although Thursday morning, with, in the pouring down rain, 
one of the athletes said, if you just happen to go for a bike ride, you could, can watch. <laughs> so I was out there on a mountain bike at big high-speed corner and, and cheering them on a little bit. But, I mean, so much of what I normally do, I'm not able to do, except for the Eagles. That's one bubble I'm in. I'm the chaplain for a junior A hockey team. And God is making a way in. I tell you, and, and, and like, okay, let me tell you about the work of the Eagles. Um, our Christian, our coach is not a Christian. But it's the funniest thing ever. I show up to practice <coughs> and I say, Steve, want to come and talk to the guys? Come in the locker room and talk to the guys? I mean, hockey is the most, usually the most anti-Christian sport ever. So some weeks I'll go, no, I'm good, coach, just here to be, just here to support the guys. Sometimes I'll go back and talk to the guys and he'll be F-bombing, F-bombing, F-bombing. Oh, by the way, here's, our chaplain wants to talk to you. <laughs> and so I'll share with the guys a little bit. And then we've got a, a, a Monday chapel. And the first one, the first one of the year, 17 guys come. Now, I don't know if I have a single Christian on our team, but 17 guys coming out for Bible study? I mean, I'm just like knocking my head going, am I dreaming this or is this real? So God is making a, a wave. And, and, and I want to skillfully, faithfully ride that wave, but not take any credit because that is not usual to, to have that. So I thank God for that. I want to ride it skillfully. But my question for you is, have you prayed lately for a wave? You know, if we pray that God might send some waves in our lives and be ready to ride the wave skillfully and faithfully if he chooses to send the wave into our lives. Well, let's look at verse 28 here. John says to his guys, you yourselves bear witness that I have said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's told these guys before. They should know. Um, he's not the Christ. He's not the one. He's just there to prepare the way. Over and over again, he's probably told them, but pride probably got in the way of that. You know, and sometimes in, in our ministry, sometimes I wonder if busyness and pridefulness gets in the way of our spending time with the Lord, which could be a pretty tragic thing. They had a hard time understanding, so John the Baptist gives them an illustration. <clears throat> Verse 29, he talks about the wedding ceremony. The bride has the, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. He stands and hears him, and he rejoices greatly. The voice of the bridegroom. You know, in ancient times, when a couple got married, they leave their parents, and and they would um, they'd, they'd build a new house. And so the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, he was in charge of all this. He was in charge of building a, a new home, and he'd also be in charge of, of getting the ceremony ready. Uh, I know how it is now. I mean, the brides do all that now, but he'd be coordinating. Probably the brides are pretty involved, too. But he'd be coordinating with the brides, coordinating the building, the construction of the home, coordinating the, the planning of the wedding. The wedding wouldn't take place until the home was ready. So there was a lot of responsibility um, for the best man at the time. Have you ever been a best man in a wedding? I've done it a couple times. Um, if you've ever watched a movie where uh, someone gets married in Chicago, there's this little old church in the middle of downtown Chicago, beautiful, exquisite old church, and one of my best friends got married in that church. And I got to be his best man. Now, for my friend Chuck, I... I didn't have to build a new house, plan the wedding. I just had to be there to support him. And, and um, my friend Chuck, he probably didn't have a lot of girlfriends, but he found the right one. And just like John says here, there's so much joy when the friend of the bridegroom is there. And here's the voice of the bridegroom. I was so pumped for my friend. My only job was to, give him, was to be there and to give him the ring. Little aside here. I gave him the ring. I did my job. And then, I didn't even notice this, but 
he dropped it. And, and you know, I've officiated a lot of weddings, and you got the ring vows where, where um, you say, do you take this, do you give this ring to blah, blah, blah? Do you receive this ring? Blah, blah. So the officiant was doing all that, but they're all faking it because they dropped the ring and they couldn't find it. So they're just pretending. <laughs> and so later we're at the wedding reception, and my friend Chuck says, hey, we got to go back. And I'm like, why? Well, we dropped the ring, and we never found it. <laughs> So we're on our hands and knees and our tuxes and our wedding gown. We're looking for the ring. Fortunately, we found it. But the, the thing that stood out about that for me is I got to really experience my friend and the joy he had. I didn't get married for another 10 years or so. You know, and on the wedding day, it's all about the, the bride and the groom and, and, and the joy that they experience. And that's what John says. He just says, you know what? Guys, it's not about us anymore. We get to have incredible joy because we get to, to look to Jesus and to make him look good. And that, as Christians, is really our responsibility to make him look good. And that's where we get our joy. And that's why it says in verse 30, the second law of life and ministry, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I don't know if you're into scripture memorization, but I recommend it. I share with my athletes, I said, guys, in the midst of getting ready for a big competition, you know, there's going to be so many doubts and things that pop into your head. You need to combat it with Scripture. So let's memorize some verses. And, and if you're new to Scripture memorization, this is a great place to start because it's amazing truth, and it's an easy one. <laughs> so remember, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that was the final verse of our, our thing today. You know, um, I started our message by talking about how our lives should be lived. When we get accolades, when we get attention, we should just bounce it one step higher, whether you're on an Olympic podium or just being kind to somebody. I'll just tell one more quick story. At the last Olympics, I met a uh, cross-country skier by the name of Sama from Iran. And, and, she, and she knew that I coached some athletes uh, in other Olympics from developing nations and was kind of asking for my help. She says, I have nobody. I live in Tehran. The other girls um, live in the mountain region, and they, the coaches only help them. They don't help me. And, and so she'll send me videos, and I'll critique them. And at the last year's World Championships, she said, they're not helping me wax my skis. What should I put on? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not there. <laughs> you know? and, and this summer, she says, I broke my, my, my skating poles, and ro my roller skis, and they've been repaired three times already, and, 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 um, and I, I can't repair them anymore. So I, we got some poles to her, and her, her WhatsApp messages, she just gushes with praise. Thank you. She says, my husband says, you're so lucky to have someone in Canada that cares about you. And she goes on and on. And, you know, I could go, yeah, I am pretty good, aren't I? But I know the truth is, I'm not. <laughs> my family will tell you, I'm not. But I, I need to tell her, and I do tell her, no, it's, Sama, it's, not, it's because, not because of I'm a nice person. It's because I have a relationship with Jesus. My friend Matt that helped me buy the poles for her, he's a Christian. He won the Berkey Barn down in the States a few years ago. He's got a ski shop. He sold them at half of his cost. I said, Matt and I, we just care about you. It's because we're both Christians, and, and, and we, we care about it. And that's why we do it. So I don't want to accept any praise like that. I want to deflect it up higher. Well, today we looked at John the Baptist's life, and the well-known preacher describes John's life as a joyful tragedy. And really, it's true. Jesus, though he said he was the greatest among men, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, the first of the great New Testament evangelists, his life ended tragically. I mean, he was put in jail for um, righteously calling the king out for his immorality. 
and then his life came to an, an end when a dancing young gal gave a sensuous dance to the king, and he said, what do you want? And she says, I think I'll give it to you. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. So that's how his, his life ended. The greatest probably of, of all men, and that's at the whim of a, of a dancing girl. And, and, and yet John was so full of joy because of, of what God used in his life to bring him to the Lord Jesus and his, his attention. I just want to close by giving us a practical application. Um, nothing strikes more fear into the heart of Christians than talking about evangelism. You know, share our faith with, with somebody. But I'm going to make it easy for you this morning. Years ago, I heard a concept called um, um, worship evangelism. And here's what worship evangelism is. It's when you enjoy your salvation. You sing about your salvation. You have full joy in your, your heart of your salvation. And most importantly, the author and giver of that salvation. And your love and your joy for Jesus just overflows. And people know that it's real because they see it in your life. They see the joy that you have. If someone comes in the back in the midst of our, our worship and they, and they see the joy in our faces as we, we, we sing and, and worship, they'll know it's, it's real. And, and that's what worship evangelism is. How do you have worship evangelism? You know what? The, the key is you can't make your life's focus uh, giving somebody else glory unless you really love that person. You really esteem that person. So daily, we need to walk with the Lord Jesus. Spend time in his word. Read about yourself in there, but read about what he's done for you in there. But most importantly, read about him in there. And read about how great he is. And then every, every day, fall more and more in love with him. And you'll want to worship him more and esteem him more. And as you worship him, it'll just flow out of you. And people can't help but say, you know what? There's something real. I see it. That's worship evangelism. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we come before you today and with extreme gratefulness for what you've done for us. And Lord, what a great example we have in John the Baptist of he must increase, but I must decrease. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just enliven our hearts and draw us close to you. Wouldn't we all uh, go astray and, and kind of walk away a little bit? I pray, Spirit, that you would just bring us back. I pray that you would just give us a heart desire to know our hearts are so prone to waywardness, and they're hard sometimes. Lord, I pray you'd soften our hearts and give us a love for you, Lord Jesus, and an understanding of how awesome you are and how awesome your salvation for us is. And I pray that we would enjoy our salvation and just point our lives in every way towards you and the awesome salvation that you give to us. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.